try to accumulate knowledge that puts together an impressive picture. And it's not just an impressive choreography. It has to be a lot of other things too. Welcome to Ballet Dance Live podcast with weekly portion of stories, tips and dance inspiration. My name is Jana Komarnitska, I'm your host and I invite you to explore all nuances of Ballet Dance Live together with me and our amazing guests. Let's start! Attention to all dancers! Applications are open for Jelena's BD experience in Virginia and Georgia. Receive six weeks of online coaching, four days of rehearsal and performing a brand new BD production. Ensemble and lead roles are available. Applications close November 19th. Find more information at balladanceevolution.com. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Baladance Life uh, podcast. How's it going? Happy you tuned in back because, uh, well, I still have a goosebumps. Are you ready for something really special and phenomenal? Today we have incredible Katerina Shireen on the podcast and her story is absolutely unbelievable. She started ballet dancing at the early age of teenage period, but she quickly became one of the most uh, uh, requested and popular performers and she was often invited to the most glamorous events where she danced for such people as Elton John, Sharon Stone and the royal families who came to London every summer. She became the very special dancer for the birthday of Her Majesty the Queen of Brunei but as uh, Katerina acknowledged herself the biggest benefit though was to work with amazing Arabic musicians of who some worked with Uncle Sum or Abdul Halim Hafez or played for legends such as 50 Abdu or Nagwa Fuad. Also you may know her incredible story of recovering from a serious injury a couple uh, years ago and uh, she was um, collecting uh, signatures for her petition not only to uh, support her in the court uh, against uh, unprofessional doctor who made a mistake but also used that petition to uh, bring uh, legibility to the status of ballet dancer, status of ballet dance teacher. That's quite incredible already on its own, recovering from such a serious injury when you literally need to learn how to walk again and uh, absolutely not giving up on your dance uh, goals and dreams and still coming back from that injury to active dance career. Not only that, she even will mention in the interview, she's actually now a CrossFit instructor, which is whoa. But also during all this time, thinking about uh, serving your community and bringing benefits to Baladin's field in general and even caring about those things in that um, state, you need to be really strong and powerful person and uh, 
those tips and things that she shared about her mindset back then before injury during injury and after injury and right now it's very refreshing to hear someone talking about approaching dance completely without any competitive ambitions but just truly trying to find the essence of dance and find joy in this activity and career i am absolutely sure you will love this episode and as always encourage you don't forget to send love and thank you to our guests for sharing their time sharing their awesomeness and sharing their stories that i'm sure can help someone who may be in similar situations right now or just inspire you to push it further and uh, this specific conversation is a great reminder that there is no limit in what we can do unless we ourselves set up those limits so without any further delay enjoy this incredible conversation Hello, Katerina. Welcome to, to the podcast and thank you for taking your time to chat with us today. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure is mine. Um, I know you have a very interesting and unique dance path and there is a lot of things I'm very excited to talk about, but I would like to start from the very beginning. I know that you started uh, ballet dance at about 16 years old. Yes. Do you remember your very first class and your impressions and thoughts that you had? <laughs> yes, yes. I I actually remember it very well. Um it was it was actually accidental because I was going to a gym for aerobics class and once I came at the wrong time and there was a belly dance class instead. Uh so I just stayed and uh, I joined that class instead and yeah and as you see, I've been sticking around since then for uh, for 17 years, is it? <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, you know what? The class, um, it was in a time when belly dance education across Europe wasn't great. And um, a good teacher who really had a good method of teaching and good knowledge was quite rare. So, of course, the class itself wasn't great. We were doing uh, moves that didn't make any sense, that had no cultural connection. We were dancing to all sorts of uh, music, some Turkish, some just like pop music. It was not even Egyptian pop music, just like European pop music. It really didn't make any sense. But um, I, I just remember that the thing that I liked about it was um, was the group of women and the energy in the room. And I was attracted to that, you know, just like women dancing together, sharing something together. That was something that I was attracted to. And, and the teacher who was leading the class, she wasn't a good dancer and she didn't know anything about belly dancing, but she had charisma. And I found it interesting too. And, and I think that this is something that is very attractive about belly dancing for a lot of women who join the classes, because uh, they see a, a confident uh, person with a charisma, and and people want to be around powerful and confident women. 
Mm, yeah, so true. Uh, and so funny how for we come in ballet dance for so many different uh, reasons and chances, but then whoever sticks there <laughs> really gets in, into the uh, dance style. By the way, uh, do you think that uh, ballet dance education, the scene of ballet dance education in Europe changed a lot uh, today compared to those times? Uh, well, I think it changed dramatically because... Um, when I remember the beginnings, um, you know, just getting any sort of belly dance video of the internet was a quest uh, for days or hours, you know, so to find something, to download something, and not to mention to figure out what it was that, if, that you're looking at uh, was nearly impossible. And uh, to get any credible information was very, very difficult. So basically... When I started in those times, all the belly dance education was based on trust. You basically had to trust your teacher. And honestly, I don't mean to be negative, but most of the teachers back then didn't deserve that trust. They didn't have the education. They didn't have the experience. They haven't traveled. They haven't studied themselves with people with knowledge. So uh, it was it was sometimes almost a little bit like a cult. Um, I know this sounds a little bit scary, but it was basically all about one woman, one woman having a lot of power, a lot of charisma, and people just sort of taking her word for it. And of course, with something as complex as, as Middle Eastern dance and Middle Eastern culture is, this is not how it can work in a productive way. So um, when you look at dance videos, from from Central Europe that are about 15 to 20 years old, uh, you will see that, uh, you know, there, there there is a lot that doesn't make sense. Um, of course, since then, uh, and since YouTube and Facebook and all the social media uh, impact on our community, the situation has changed dramatically. But also due to the fact that people really started investing money in traveling to Egypt. Uh, you had the boom of the massive Egyptian festivals, which was starting to happen just around the time when I started dancing. And suddenly you had festivals with 1,200 1, people, which of course now doesn't even happen anymore. So um, from my perspective, belly dance community and belly dance education is going through different phases and different fads. And it is constantly changing and it's exciting to think about but where is it going to be in five years. Mm, yeah, so true. And uh, yeah, I completely can relate to it that comparing dance to a cult uh, sounds scary, but uh, I kind of feel I know exactly what you're talking about. And many dancers may feel uh, the same way too. Uh, once they slightly grown up, the beginner's uh, intermediate level and can see around and explore beyond just like four walls of their own studios. Not to say that everyone has the same situation, but I I'm just feel that many dancers can relate to it. Uh, but interesting thing that you also pointed out, the boom of festivals, but it was not only boom of festivals in Egypt, even in Europe uh, yeah. themselves, there was a lot of many different festivals. Do you think festivals, they play, um, they can really help dancers to educate themselves into different subjects of ballet dance and just be more aware of this dance field? Mm, honestly, 
uh, to answer that, it would take a little bit of time. But sure. uh, my, my experience is um, as follows. Um, it depends very much on the organizer of the festival uh, and also on their motivation. It's not a secret that a lot of teachers basically use festivals for self-promotion. It's a way... Uh, and now I am not judging it. I'm just saying the way it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody can make their own opinion about that. A lot of teachers' motivation to organize a festival is basically to create contacts abroad, invite dancers from abroad, and then be invited themselves. Uh, a lot of teachers from abroad who were teaching at Egyptian festivals were teaching there because they invited the Egyptian teachers to teach in, at their festivals. So the way it was is that you'd basically have a school filled with students. You tell the students to attend an event. You use your charisma, your power, your influence to make students attend a certain event. And you use that income from that event for your own PR. And uh, again, I want, to, I want to repeat that I am not judging this, but you know, it is a business strategy, basically, to pretend that Organizing festivals is all about love of the dance and education for everyone, of course, is um, a little bit from the land of fairy tales. That's that's not how how it is. And it's not how, you know, people would expect it to be. Um, regardless, a lot of these festivals were great. They They brought great benefit. They connected people, people who went there had a great time. Um, but I think that the potential of the festivals sort of disappeared a little bit over the time. And this is why a lot of the festivals sort of broke up. People had fights. Uh, The Egyptian festivals sort of almost disappeared, sort of broke into many different divisions. Anyway, um, the thing is, the festivals had a lot of benefits, but... uh, I think those benefits over time disappeared a little bit because a lot of organizers realized that the juice is not worth the squeeze and that they are not getting out of it what they expected to get out of it because, you know, very few organizers ever managed to make money out of any festival they're organized, uh, especially in Europe. And, uh, you know, if you're not getting that PR effect from it, um, then... uh, then they realize it's probably not really worth worth it anymore. And um, it's a shame because now dancers have less and less opportunities to meet because, of course, that was one great benefit that people would gather from all around Europe and they would empower themselves and share ideas and share their affection for this culture and this dance. And this is something that kept the community going. And I'm very sorry to to see it disappear a little bit, but uh, I think it was inevitable because people had unrealistic expectations of what they can get out of festivals. Mm, Yeah, that's so true. Thinking about a student's perspective, can you think about some tips or suggestions for dancers who are less experienced in uh, belly dance festival world how to choose festival uh to attend 
in order to get some educational benefits because attending festivals abroad it's also a financial risk for students too they pay money they want to get uh, uh, not only fun <laughs> fun atmosphere they also want to get some knowledge and some benefit like to develop their dance skills and in these terms that festivals became a promotional tool how can you think about like a couple of tips for students, for dancers, how can they choose which festival to attend, uh, how they can choose wisely which festival to invest their money in? I think uh, to not spend money where it's not worth spending. I think it's very important for the students to ask themselves, what is it that they want to get out of this experience? Uh, to be fair, I don't know many people who started belly dancing because they were interested in belly dancing. A lot of people start this dance and they, of course, have no idea what it is. They started because uh, the teacher looks pretty, because the teacher is nice, uh, because they want to do something when they are around other women with whom they can share. Uh, usually the culture and the dance itself isn't the primary reason why people start and quite often this is how it keeps going on and on and people sort of keep doing this dance without really getting involved in the culture and when they go to festivals they go there because they like to rehearse a nice choreography with their friends and they like to compete they like the excitement of the competition uh, they like the costumes uh, and they like the community but that still doesn't mean that they are really interested in getting some solid belly dance education. Uh, so again, I am I am not judging this approach because I think there is a validity validity to it, and I think it's one of the great things this dance can offer. Um, but if if this is what people want, if they just want the um, the friendships and uh, going to a competition and buying a costume and just you know, having these personal things that aren't attached to the to the to the dance uh, itself and to the culture, then going to the festivals will probably work just fine because that's what the festivals are about. But if somebody is really interested in solid dance education, uh, then I really don't believe that any of these festivals or most of them, you know, you have of course exceptions and every festival is a little bit different depending on who organizes it but i don't really believe that going to a big festival is the most productive way to really get some deeper knowledge um, if somebody really wants to improve in in this dance then what i suggest would be intensive courses with one great teacher and there are great teachers out there who do intensive week-long or a couple of days courses where they spend with the students six, seven days, uh, seven hours a day, and they talk and explain. And you come away from such a course with some real knowledge and with, uh, with a changed perspective, uh, not just a couple of choreographies. The thing is, when you go to festivals, the workshops usually take up one hour, one hour and a half, and uh, the, the room is filled with people. Usually there are more than 30, more than 50 people. And uh, what can the teacher really do with 50 people in one and a half hour? They can basically just stand on the stage and keep them entertained. And this is what festivals are about. It's about keeping each other entertained. It's not about educating each other. 
Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, perspective. And I kind of uh, feel the same way about intensives. And uh, I wish there were more intensives. Like I keep looking at dancers in uh, uh, China or in general in Asia. Like I feel that intensive there is the main thing. And I so much wish uh, there was more of that in Europe too. But we keep uh, for now sticking to festival <laughs> formats. I, I don't even think there are that many festivals in Europe anymore. There are a few. Uh, actually, the, the festivals that are happening now in Europe that I know about are actually quite good. You know, like I, I have been I have been to as a teacher to a couple of the festivals around Europe and I really can't complain. They are this, the ones that are still going on, like the one in Budapest or in Barcelona. You know, these are festivals that that have um, a concept and this concept makes sense to me. And, uh, of course, there isn't enough space and time to really go deeply into anything, but that's fine. You know, there are other alternatives to do that. Um, and at least you get to meet more teachers and then you can make, make choice for yourself. But it's true that, uh, in Asia and in China, especially, uh, when I travel there, um, my main objective and my mo main focus are week long seminars. I, I, I did a couple of two week intensive courses where I was teaching every day for six, seven hours for two weeks, the same group of people. I had 30 people for two weeks every single day. And uh, of course, you cannot compare that to, to anything you can take away from a festival because it's a completely different idea. Why do you think those kind of intensives are not uh, really popular in Europe for now, at least? Um, because they are expensive. They are expensive. It's, uh, um, you know, people, people are much more willing to pay money for entertainment than for education. Mm. People don't want to pay for, for education. They want to pay for entertainment. So people will always rather throw money at a festival uh than at an intensive that's how it is hmm. for me it's very fascinating topic i am even now keep thinking like uh, what is the difference in mentality like why for instance in asia people are interested specifically in investing in education because for instance if you take china it's not like ballet dance part of the culture it's the same relationship to ballet dance as if in europe or more or less let's say like vaguely <laughs> describing but such a different difference in approach to to ballet dance education and events um this is a difficult question to answer but believe me in china you have also a lot of festivals and a lot of teachers uh who have no clue what they are doing and uh, also, you will see intensives in China, but that doesn't mean that all these intensives um, are really giving something. There are a lot of intensives in China where one teacher, uh, usually somebody who is in their early 20s from Russia or from Ukraine arrives, they do a two-week intensive where they teach a different choreography every single day, some super challenging technical choreography. They, they teach folklores they don't understand. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, an intensive is not about teaching 14 choreographies in 14 days. It's not about people taking away, uh, evening long 
video of different choreos that they are not able to dance anyway. The type of intensive I'm talking about is, for example, what Sahara Saida is doing in her journey through Egypt or what Nesma is doing with her uh, Reda style intensive. Uh, these are intensives that really make a difference. Uh, I'm not sure that the intensives in China are always this sort of intensives, to be honest. So um, they are very hardworking people. They are extremely competitive. Uh, there is a lot of them. So the community is very big and they are trying to find any sort of getting advantage and getting ahead in this, in this style of dance. And uh, intensives are just one way of doing it for them. But uh, I'm, I'm afraid they don't always pick the right type of intensives because, uh, as you said, their connection to the culture and to this dance is a little bit distant. And uh, sometimes they tend to approach this dance as a sport. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it doesn't always bring the best result. It doesn't bring understanding always. Mm, I see. Well, anyway, it's truly a fascinating topic for me and very interesting to see what will be even in a couple of years, change in ballad and scene and now also this boom of social media and internet educational platforms and not only festivals and intensives. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, well, we can kind of see it already. What is happening now that there is, there is an increasingly big divide between ballet dance as a sport and belly dance as a cultural study. And of course, a lot of the people who are trying to do the cultural studied style of dance, they sort of are pushed to do sometimes something that is a little bit sporty because this is where the money and the business is. But also the people who are doing the sporty style of belly dance, they don't want to feel like they are just frauds. You know, they, they don't want to They don't want to look like they have no idea what they are doing. So they are, of course, trying to sometimes catch some of the cultural aspects of the dance as well. So, um, but but regardless of that, you know, th th there, there is quite a big divide between these two directions. And what I think will happen is it will just get increasingly divided and eventually it will probably re-emerge and reinvent itself as something that we can compare to Argentinian and ballroom tango where you have a ballroom tango that is a sport and you have Argentinian tango that has a cultural background. And uh, the people just live peacefully next to one another, probably with, uh, you know, some, some things in common, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very clear divide. Mm. But I kind of feel that ballet dance also start evolving into the third form, which I'm not quite sure how to word, but just as an example, I had this observation that a lot of uh, famous ballet dancers these days, they start putting like posts on social media with this contact like, oh, I don't want to be labeled ballet dancer, I just want to be a dancer or artist, because they are not doing it as a sport, they are approaching it artistically and like as an art. But they also don't want to to get into the conversations of like ballet dance as a cultural background dance form, so that then they're changing it to, to their taste, but understanding that they're not doing traditional traditional like Oriental or ballet dance, how how we call it. So it kind of goes into the third form ballet dance. I don't know how to describe it, but I guess I just as an art. I understand what you mean. Uh, 
uh, you know what, of course, the history of this dance is quite complex. And uh, of course, there is a local sort of indigenous cultural aspect of it with the folklore and with, uh, with the local dance forms uh, that are across the Middle East that honestly, most of us have never even seen <laughs> because let's not kid ourselves. Our knowledge, our Western knowledge of Middle Eastern uh, cultural dance forms and local dance forms is extremely limited. And just because we know what Reda Stal Saidi looks like, it doesn't mean we understand Egyptian folklore at all. So um, there is this sort of social, social dancing, community dancing, local expression through movement uh, that doesn't have anything with, to do with, with shows, really. It didn't have anything to do with, with, with shows, really. Um, until until quite recently uh, and then you have the showgirl aspect of it the kind of oriental pinup girl kind of thing which uh, you know people sometimes find find it hard to cope with how in contrast and how paradox these two these two worlds next to next to one another are because on one hand you have you have the local dancing that is that can be quite conservative, that has certain rules that that are driven by the daily life of the people. Um, and next to it, you have, have, have the sexy girl in a bra. Um, and uh, to me, of course, because I have studied the, the reason why, the, why things are the way they are, I've studied for a while, uh, it doesn't seem so crazy to me. But to somebody who doesn't exactly know how one thing led to one another. This can this can look like a paradox, and I think this is what what uh, leads people a lot to to slut shaming and cultural appropriation and whitewashing and all these problems that that uh, we can't help to to face on a daily basis in the community. Um, and what you said is, um, of course, it's interesting that a lot of people sort of draw inspiration from Middle Eastern dance, but then at the end they don't want to be associated with it because they feel like it's limiting them. Um, I don't really know what to say to that. Um, I just leave leave it to everybody's best conscience to do what they are doing to the best of their ability. Um, I know what my path is. I know what I, I am not willing to do and what I am willing to do. And my path is very connected to the culture and I am honestly trying to do it right and not to offend people of the culture with what I'm doing and sort of um, pass pass on my knowledge and what I have learned. Um, and the people who are trying to take a more free artistic approach to it, I think as long as they are drawing some inspiration from Middle Eastern culture, they should take it into an account and... It, it should be their artistic responsibility to know whether they are crossing lines or not and constantly and consistently look into that danger. Even if they decide to be free, as long as they are drawing the inspiration from, from this culture, you know, this sort of... Um, responsibility goes, you know, both ways. They are taking something away from it. They owe it a little bit of consideration, in my opinion. So, yeah, that's what I think. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. I actually was referring to a slightly even different uh, angle on this uh, topic because I was referring more to artists who mostly are in the festival world and they are not the ones who are promoting like sexiness or open costumes and etc. Whatever we see craziness <laughs> there too. But uh, I, I was just curious about your topic because the topic of like what is authentic in this dance form and who has the right to bring anything new and also the topic of foreign like white dancers doing ballet dance and should they only follow examples of Egyptians or do they have any artistic freedom too? Like it's very, uh, there is no right or wrong answer. I, I don't think there is any answer there, like really. When you look at it historically, there were Slavic slaves at the Middle Eastern courts in the Abbasid dynasty. So, uh, you know what, uh, women, women sort of being expected to, to perform white women being expected to perform um, a certain style of dance isn't something that we started in the 60s in USA. So, uh, you know, I, I know this is a little, might seem a little far-fetched, but um, I, I don't think that this is a dance that only Middle Eastern people should be entitled to do. <laughs> that's that's not what, what I I think, and obviously it's been my job for a long time, so it would be a hypo hypocritical of me if I, if I did think that. Um, but um, yeah, with all the fusion styles and all the new influences, you know, of course, it is a little bit tricky because sometimes rules are bent and norms are pushed and evolutions is, evolution is achieved through, through breaking norms and breaking rules. Um, so I, I don't want to I don't want to judge people who are trying to, to do new things. And uh, this this dance also happened through breaking norms. You know, just just look at Samia Gamal, look at Naimakev. They they were breaking a lot of rules. And uh, without them, you know, I don't know. You know, this dance probably wouldn't look the way it does. But yeah, Masabni, she she broke a lot of rules, and and uh, she she is a major figure now. And of course, these are Middle Eastern women, so it should be judged differently. But uh, but still, you know, we, we can contribute something too. And when we do it uh, respectfully, I think it should be taken on board. And um, also another thing is it there is the artistic aspect to it. And when somebody dances truly beautifully and you look at them and you take pleasure in watching them and uh, you're having a great time watching a beautiful dance number, then that is something that just has an undeniable value. Mm, so to the point. <laughs> mm, yeah, exactly. Coming, exactly. coming back to your own dance history, um, I know you had quite a few uh, changes and turns in your career and ups and, and bumps and one of those bumps where um you had an injury that you you recovered and came back fully to the dance activities uh would you mind sharing sharing that story what was that and how you you recovered and came back to full energy dance <laughs> dancing <laughs> now <laughs> a different energy maybe well um what happened is i i ripped my meniscus during uh, dance practice 
and I just went for a routine operation that was supposed to take 15 minutes and uh, the operation was on Wednesday and I was already supposed to travel to Spain to teach at a festival on Friday so I didn't expect it would be anything major but what happened is that um, the doctor who was operating me unfortunately made, made a mistake and he cut in half um, the biggest artery in uh, that we have in our legs, you know, the biggest artery that I had in my leg. He cut it in half, he didn't notice. He closed the leg again and he left. Um, so I had internal bleeding for eight hours and uh, during that time I lost all the nerves in my leg and um, I, I suffered some muscle damage. So um, after that I was in ICU for a, for a long time and I was in a wheelchair and I spent months in a in a rehab, and um, yeah, it was it, it it's just something that happened in my life, and uh, and um, it it was tough, but you know what it doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and it made me stronger, and um, and um, I learned a lot of new things through this experience. When when it happened, uh, like what? Uh... Well, I can only imagine what kind of thoughts and feelings you had, but it's so uh, shocking probably not for anyone, for any person, but especially for, for dancer, that it's your your body is your basically your tool. And uh, a lot of people would be even discouraged to think about continuing their dance career. What kind of encouraging thoughts or motivation you had back then uh, not to not to give up and, and continue and recover, and not only recover physically just for living, but recover physically to come back to dancing? Well, you know, it was a tough time because my mother died just two weeks before that. My son was one year old and he was not allowed to visit me because I was in the ICU. So it was a tough time for, for also other reasons than me just like thinking that I will never be able to dance again. Firstly, I never really accepted the fact that I will never be able to dance again. It was not something I would I would just like accept as a fact. And also... You know, I know I'm a dancer, but my biggest asset was never my body. It was always my brain. And uh, as long as I think, I'm fine. And I knew that even if I wouldn't be able to dance, I would just do something else. I would just use my other skills and my education in a different way, in a different way that uh, would make me happy and that would bring something positive to other people. So... I was not depressed, I was not negative, I was not desperate, because I knew that it's just another thing in my life that that I have to use in the best of my ability. Mm. That's very encouraging, and uh, I think we'll be very encouraging to, to hear from people who may be in similar situations right now and going through some mm. tough times. So thank you for sharing, and it's a good reminder that this is just a bump. It's temporarily, it will pass, and it will lead to something else, something new, and who knows, uh, maybe even like opening new doors and new thoughts. Oh. I think this is, this, uh -huh. this is, I just want to add, I think it's important for dancers. Um, and what I always like to tell students, you know, to not just work at their dance skills, you know, 
belly dancing and oriental dancing and being a dance teacher or a businesswoman in this in this area it requires a lot of other skills and uh, you can't just invest all your energy and all your time just in practicing dance moves because it, it's just not enough you have to develop in other areas study uh, learn things you know just try to accumulate knowledge that puts together an impressive picture and it's not just an impressive choreography it has to be a lot of other things too and once you have that then if you break your leg you are not going to be done because you will always have other great things in your life mm, so true and did your approach to dance change the, uh, before and after injury mm, honestly no, not really not really i um my the, the major changes in my in my dance life happened quite early on they happened in about the five, first five years and um after i sort of found a solid ground beneath my feet that i knew i want to walk on and i sort of found a direction in this dance that made sense to me uh then i just kept going on it and i just i just i just kept 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 walking on that path and uh, when i restarted after my injury again i just i just sort of picked up where where i where i finished before before it happened mm, i see but did you add any i don't know fitness or strength or some other conditioning oh, after I mean, injury that was different i have i have but to me that's only partially connected to the dance i because i had to learn how to walk again i had to start working out i had to start going to the gym uh first you know i could not do anything because my ligaments were too short i had no muscle mass it was it was it was quite hard in the beginning and then uh, then yeah i started going to the gym i found a personal trainer and it kind of went crazy a little bit crazy from there because i really started um this liking this extreme work because um this is the thing when you reach a certain limit of how much you can do with your body and you know there are a few things that are as difficult as like starting to to walk again if you spend two months just being you know descended on a wheelchair into a swimming pool because there is nothing else you can do and once you manage that and once you get up there and once you are determined that you are not going to stop that you want to do more uh then sky's the limit and once you realize how much space you have above your head and how far you can grow you never want to stop so um when i was in the rehab i decided that i want to run a marathon which seemed completely crazy at the time because i still can't really feel my leg from the knee down um yeah and last year i ran a marathon so um and now i'm um i do crossfit and i'm i'm a certified crossfit coach actually even though i don't do it but i just like you know i'm a nerd i when, I, when i'm into something i like to have a certificate um so these things of course evolved but they are not necessarily about the dance they are more about me and about um you know using my potential seeing what i can do and doing it Oh wow! Marathon and certified uh, CrossFit trainer. Wow. 
<laughs> I can do lifting heavy things. <laughs> wow, that's quite a change <laughs> and the contrast to, to the to the experience. Um you also were really tapping early on on the social uh, media tools and you were sharing a little bit of your experience uh, through social media, even about your injury. But also I know that you were doing, a, uh, I believe around 2014, 2015, you were doing your uh, blog with very cool, informative uh, articles. What did it push you to start uh, sharing uh things via blog and why you stopped (laughs) i was just looking at the blog the other day and i really just published a few things and um not much what the interesting thing i did in 2004 i organized the middle eastern culture symposium in prague at the at the municipal library with the support of Czech, uh, czech ministry of education and that was an interesting project where i invited various scholars and uh, some inspiring, amazing people like Morocco and Sahra Saida and Farida Fahmi to lecture. So that was an interesting project. So some of my articles came from that experience. Um, but um, honestly, I just enjoy to write. I, uh, writing is one of my hobbies. I, I enjoy elo- eloquence as a skill. And um, my mother was a screenwriter for the television. She was a movie maker and a screenwriter. So um you know, writing was always a part of my of my life. Um, so one of the reasons I, I, I wrote the blog was because I enjoyed to write. And also because um, when I traveled as a dancer, I came across different situations and experiences. And, uh, you know, sometimes writing writing about it was was a way to process my thoughts and uh you know learning learning from the experiences through articulating these these this these these thoughts mm. i also know that your a grand uh, parent one of your grandparents uh there's somehow related to the translation field and uh, uh new oh, 10 languages that. wow that's interesting yeah my grandfather he spoke nine languages um so yeah, he taught himself Hungarian, which is to me amazing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and um, my grandparents from my father's side, they wanted me to be a translator. And um, and uh, yeah, I started learning German when I was four. I started French when I was six. I started English when I was ten. And um, again, you know, speaking foreign languages is something that is natural for me. And it's just um, it's it's just um, a better way to ex- express oneself, and um, it improves the the way I'm able to think about things. I think I hope. Um, but anyway, as you see, I didn't really become a translator per se, even though to me, uh, dancing is is sort of metaphorically. Um, a way of translation or a way of translating sound into movement and emotions into movement and uh, passing on a certain message from one medium through another. Um, so yeah, this is th- this is my way of translating things in my own language, I guess. Mm, yeah, that's beautiful. And dance is literally universal translation. <laughs> I feel uh, that we don't need to... Uh... 
even learn and understand, we can just feel it and feel cross cross border translation of feelings and emotions and and maybe even thoughts and ideas. <laughs> I, I think I think the parallel between dance and language um, works very well on many levels. Uh, when I'm trying to explain something in my in my workshops or in my classes, I very often use use um, use language parallels and language metaphors because. Um, the connection is definitely there. You know, dance is a language. It's it's a language that that we can learn, or you know, and we can learn to understand. Uh, but we can also just repeat the words without understanding them, and that's what some dancers do as well. Hmm. What aspects of dancing, or which topics you wish uh, dancers were thinking or? asking about more often than they actually do i i guess i wish people would be a little more interested in the music i know a lot of people are and maybe some dancers who are listening to this to this podcast are now jumping off their chairs and you know just putting the volume on on up on their on their umkalsum album that is playing right now uh so yeah i'm i'm just like in general, I think people are um, neglecting a little bit the fact of um, how deep the meaning is when it comes to this dance. And uh, uh, that it's not just an audio background to the movement and that it's not just a tune that, you know, you just choose and then you present yourself, uh, yourself to it. I think that... Uh, you know, there is a deeper meaning and a deeper feeling to it. And um, I think it would be great if people would spend a little bit more time listening and watching uh, than just practicing moves. Um, and, um, yeah, just, um, you know, people who love this dance truly, uh, they will look for these things because it's like when you fall in love with a person, you check their Facebook page. You know, you you want to know things about them. You want to know what did they study. You know, want to know uh, how how they lived when they were children. You know, you just when you love something, when you love someone, you want to know them. And uh, I think it's the same thing with this dance. You know, people who love this dance, they want to know it. They want to understand it. They want to know where it's coming from. They want to imagine where it's going. And uh, yeah, and. Music is a massive part of that. Hmm. And uh, how do you see your uh, future dance uh, path unfolding? Uh, I know we never can predict the future, but uh, you probably have some like dreams or some goals, and uh, you were having some uh, taking some actions in the past to to forward it and direct into the uh, direction that you want to but how do you imagine it in the future <laughs> honestly to be perfectly honest in my dance life i have done 250 percent of what i ever imagined that i'm gonna be able to do uh, i i did the things that i was just dreaming about when i was a teenager 50 times over you know, I have been to China 12 times. I have traveled throughout the States five times. I have taught at festivals. I've done intensives. I met 
some of the most amazing people you can meet in this dance and some of them aren't even alive anymore. You know, I have, I have real friendships and real connections with people in this dance and I cherish them. And there are so many people I admire that I met through this dance and I'm deeply grateful for that. So, you know, my feeling about my own personal connection to this dance at this moment is just gratitude. There is nothing more I want to take away from it, really. And um, my my goal for the future, really, is just to keep the people who matter to me and uh, the people who I believe are doing their jobs within this dance right, you know, around and to to support them as as much as I can and just share whatever I know. Uh, but I don't have any, you know competitions I want to win and countries I want to visit uh, and, you know, some great, you know, pile of money I want to earn. You know, I, I don't, I don't have that anymore. I, um, um, honestly, I, I've, I've, from my perspective, I've pretty much done it all. <laughs> and uh, this dance doesn't owe me anything. And all I can give and all I can do is just try to give back. Mm. that's also an interesting uh, artistic uh, place and you are not really trying to chase anything like uh, goal after goal and just trying to enjoy the process and being in this moment in this time and just enjoying practicing art and exploring art further and uh, it probably will bring very interesting uh, fruits <laughs> as a reward too i'm absolutely sure in it uh you know, yeah, I, I can, I, I must say that I'm really happy that I can enjoy a certain level of freedom, you know, and sometimes be able to take a step back and not dance for a while and then throw myself back into it and be really passionate about it. And whenever I teach a workshop, whenever I go to a festival, I feel this burning passion, you know, for this dance and for this community and I'm in it and I'm excited and and uh, I come home and I'm like floating on number nine, on, on cloud number nine. Mm -hmm. And then and then I go back into this normal life, uh, daily life I live. And, and I do other things that I'm passionate about and, and other projects that I want to do that have nothing to do with dancing. Uh, and that makes me happy too. And then whenever somebody invites me and uh, whenever I go and teach somewhere, uh, I get to live this passion for this dance again. And uh, I'm just a very, very lucky person, to be honest. <laughs> I can't complain at all. <laughs> can you tell us, please, where our listeners can uh, follow your uh, dance journey and dance activities and uh, uh, which maybe upcoming trips this fall and winter you have that they can catch you in person some of your dance classes uh, hopefully some dance intensives but uh, even if not then maybe some workshops <laughs> honestly I, I i'm teaching now mainly here around in london sometimes i do intensives here uh, and I teach private classes here sometimes. And um, uh, I don't have my calendar here, but I'm going again to Czech Republic back to dance. And uh, I am sort of planning in my head to come back to the United States, but I have so much to do back here with my family and in London that I just can't get to 
confirm the date, even though I already have confirmed sponsors there. Um, next year in spring, I'm going back to I'm going back to China again. <laughs> so yeah, because I just go there every year. And um, I'm, I was talking about some people about doing a tour tour about uh, around other countries in Asia as well. Um, I was um, I'm sort of planning to go to Sweden in uh, probably in November, but that's not confirmed yet. So if I confirm that, I will put it out there. Um, and what else? I'll have to I have to look it up. You know, I'm so relaxed now about <laughs> about planning things. I remember I remember like years ago. All my weekends were full and and I was like checking my calendar all the time and checking how many months in advance I have things booked up. And now I'm just sort of letting it be. And, um, you know, my, my website hasn't been updated for two years and I barely ever put anything on Facebook and um, I haven't had my new pictures taken for three years. So you can't. You can't really say I am putting 100% effort in my dance career because I'm not. Um, but, you know, that's the way I get to enjoy it. You know, that's the way I get to enjoy it when I am not, uh, you know, biting my na- my nails to self-promote myself and uh, making things happen. So, yeah. <laughs> well, dance career is not only things that happen or showcased on social media. It's still... It's still a dance career, so uh, and to be honest, I'm listening. I'm even a bit jealous because sometimes we we get overtaken by all this social media and promotion hustle and everything, and we sometimes forget just just be and just leave and just uh, let let the things happen naturally to just according to to what is our passion and what is our focus and work. So, uh, but if you are putting out things uh, where do you usually put them out is it facebook is it instagram i put things usually on instagram and on facebook and i have to learn how to edit my website honestly because my my husband he is this like amazing graphic designer who made this uh, crazy website for me that i love the way it looks because i love crazy things um but he hasn't taught me how to edit it so yeah i have this crazy website that looks really interesting but uh, there is nothing there that would be updated so i have to i have to really look into that and with the social media yeah i'm a little apprehensive to spend too much time on social media because to be honest they are a lot of things about this dance that can make me potentially angry and in the past there, there were a lot of things that took the better of me and that made me crazy and then i felt compelled to react to them and get angry and And you know what? I'm not doing that to myself anymore. Um, When there is something that I feel is unethical or has some sort of negative impact on the community as a whole, then I speak up. But uh, when it comes to my own negative emotions, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I, I have no time for that anymore. So I am not really following much of that. I used to, but but I just don't. 
Mm, that's good for you, <laughs> honestly. Anyway, I will add uh, links uh, uh, to your social media in the show notes. So whoever is listening now, you can easily find and connect to Katerina via social media and um, hope for good luck to catch <laughs> all yeah. announcements uh, from her. If, if anybody have any questions about anything that I said or would want to confront me and have a heated argument... Uh, yeah, I always like those, so <laughs> feel free to contact me. Or just message uh, saying that you uh, related to things that Katerina shared uh, as well, not just arguments. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I, uh, you know what? I, I know there are a lot of people out there who kind of, when they listen to me, they nod their heads and what I say makes sense to them. But I also know that there are a lot of people who uh, sort of look at my approach and they have issues with it. And uh, and sometimes they don't speak up and they rather, you know, keep it to themselves. And I just want to let them know that they don't have to. You know, I am um, I'm a person who likes to talk about things. So uh, don't be afraid. And even if you have something to add or, you know, something you would want to discuss, just reach out. It's fine. Mm, that's great. And uh, yes, not every uh, conversation needs to be an argument. It can be just conversation of different ideas. <laughs> well, because change ideas. Yeah. That's, that's one of the great things about that I took away from going to festivals. You know, you always find people who like to exchange ideas. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for for your time and sharing. I loved how we right away got to the <laughs> to the meaty point <laughs> uh, of conversation, like right from the first seconds of it. Um, but I also want to sum up our conversation with our traditional uh, signature question of the podcast, and I ask this question every single guest, and I love hearing sometimes different, sometimes similar answers to it. So I'm very curious about your honest so shoot <laughs> and the question is what makes you fall in love with ballet dance again and again so you keep doing it for so many years this is so funny because i just posted an answer to that on my instagram today when somebody else asked me that <laughs> <laughs> it's literally just like half an hour ago um i know but i was hoping i can rephrase it somehow <laughs> yeah, it's, fine. it's fine and it's a you know it's a good question and it's a question that it doesn't hurt to um, to 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 ask uh that ourselves and um you know there are a lot of things about balance that that you can love um, and of course, one aspect is how it improves uh, our relationships to ourselves, um, how it improves our relationships to the people around us, and uh, what it brings us in the long term. And and I think that in the beginning, I was really more into uh, the instant impact of it you know it was like something that would bring me endorphins I would instantly just feel good and then I would go home and just do something else but over the time I realized it's something that can bring me uh, fulfillment and that can give me purpose in the long term that you know being a teacher is an amazing thing it's it's you know coaching people sharing with people and studying through being a teacher is, is just a, a unique experience. And I am really deeply grateful that I found this dance because it allowed me to be a teacher and it allowed me to, to form myself 
to be the teacher I wanted to be. And, um, and I really loved this dance for it, for these opportunities it has given me. And then, of course, when I look at the dance itself, um, that is something that is a little bit difficult to judge because uh, <laughs> when you are in it for so many years, uh, you you can't really just say one thing or two things that mm-hmm. you love about it. But as, as I just answered this question, you know, there is, um, there is an amazing balance and ratio of freedom and rules within this dance. Um, and it's, it's a lifelong journey and it's a very exciting journey to figure out what the rules are, how to translate them into movement, how to transmit the message of this culture through your body and through your understanding of this culture. And, uh, all these amazing new influences, you know, you can just spend one day watching videos and listening to music and it can change your perspective and it can make you better. And, um, it's, it's just, it's just so much freedom, uh, that you can explore, but also so many interesting restrictions and so many interesting rules and, uh, so many interesting traditions that you can learn about, uh, that I just, I just find it very exciting. I just find, I just find this dance and this culture and the contradictions and the problematic aspects of it and the politics of the Middle East and how they connect to the dance and the religious, the religious, you know, uh, aspects of, of this culture, how they influence the arts. I, I just, I just find it truly fascinating. Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if so, do you know the best way to support this project is to share it with your friends. It takes a few seconds, costs you nothing, but it helps a lot to move this project forward and help me to bring more awesome guests on the podcast in the future. You can tell your friend, you can send a message, email, you can screenshot and put a a post on social media, whatever works better for you. But if every one of you will share this episode at least with one more person, it will make a huge difference for this podcast. Thank you for spending your time with us, for your support and love. And until next time, keep shimming, keep dancing, and I will see you soon. Thank you.